like scary movies. Uh huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you might know today's guest from the book of Boba Fett, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or seeing him bust the dang move. Please welcome Galen Howard. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, I definitely, you're, you're a working actor. I see you on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I see you on these shows. You were in the Justin Timberlake music video, which was very, Guilty. very fun. Oh, very. And, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. And I got to know, like, was that like the start of your love of dancing or was that something <laughs> you were, had been... <laughs> I always had a love for, you know, cutting loose on the dance floor. I always had my my own unique, you would say, or I, I guess I, I, I guess unique is unique is, is often misused. I guess unusual form of form of 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 movement and 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 dance and, you know, since I was a kid. But but yeah, I think there were a few like music videos and that sort of thing where, you know, there was an opportunity to kind of to move uh, pseudo rhythmically. So, you know, yeah, that, but that was probably the, that was easily the most, yeah, that, that, that was, that was, uh, that was the most first, most widely seen example of that in my career. Hell yeah. Well, I love it. I love seeing it happen. It's a, know, yeah, it's a great, respect. it's a great video. It's still, <laughs> I mean, I think it's still, uh, still one that I, that people talk about, uh, you know, get, you know, brightening their day. I think it's, it's peaked well over, you know, a billion views now, which is insane. It's um, a work at a fake donut shop. Who says no? Well, well, to be fair, it was not a fake donut shop. That is a real, uh, that oh, is a, real. that is a R Randy's donuts is a, a well-known um they, they shot all on location for that mm -hmm. uh, you know in los angeles on that for that video and so randy's donuts was a he is a very well-known iconic donut shop in los angeles in um in inglewood and in fact there was i i forget around the time of the release of that video they it must have been like a slow news day on i think tmz or something like that but they did an article about when that video came out, so some people at Randy's were, were like, well, they should have used our guy at Randy's <laughs> who knows how to bust a move. And they had what these, the this, and they had this video of him, of this guy dancing while putting on the tray of donuts. And I'm like, okay, this is, this, this is a slow news day, but yeah. they were like, they were like, just so you know, our guy at Randy's <laughs> can bust a move as well. And which I, you know, I never had the uh, had the gall to challenge him to a dance off. I was just more like, you know, let him have his moment. That's great. Hell yeah. But but yeah, they you know, they wanted they wanted that to be clear. But yeah, there was all it was all like a lot of iconic. I forget where the diner was and places like that. But they had it was all iconic spots in and around Los Angeles. Much so, like another piece of exactly. media, exactly <laughs> a perfect segue. Perfect segue. Yes, there, and we can we can talk about that. But in this movie, yeah, there are you know, many many locations around uh, around that area in 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 Miracle Mile that are still iconic to this day. Definitely. Before we get too far into Miracle Mile, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? If it's something that you're generally into, if it's more of a once in a while thing, because as you say. This is a less usual pick for a Correct. horror. Correct. Yeah, when I saw some of the other picks that other people had had, it kind of emboldened me to to think a little outside the box, which is awesome. So, yeah, yeah, the, yeah but but yeah, as far as horror, it was it was something I was 
I've always had a relationship to it. I think, you know, from the early days of, you know, my, my early, early childhood for a lot of people, uh, you know, I, my introduction to, to horror was things like the classic scary stories to tell in the dark books, which those oh, yeah. iconic illustrations, incredible illustrations on those. The Goosebumps series, Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think the most, the I think my first introduction to kind of mature adult horror was was Tales from the Crypt TV series. Oh, yeah. You know, I still, I still turn on one of those anytime and just, yeah, it hits just as hard. I love that show and I love, big fan of anthology horror as well, just in general. And then as far as all of the other genres, the, you know, the, and the early to modern contemporary classics, I'd say it was... It was wasn't until my mid twenties that I was mid late twenties that I was getting into more more of that exploring the genre more really getting a more a real appreciation for the genre I st- I think up until that point you know I was kind of a a film snob growing up in my late in my teens twenties and so you know kind of and you know, you know kind kind of mistakenly kind of would kind of disregard it as kind of you know, a lesser a lower tier. And, and then it wasn't until I actually, until I, I was, you know, began, began acting in a handful of horror movies early on when a good friend of mine wrote and produced a film I was in, in the early teens called Children of Sorrow came out in Lionsgate. And so we, we were hanging out a lot and would always go to movies a lot. And so we, it's, so he was really big in horror at that point. He was, he was writing, writing and producing a lot of horror. So I, you know, was as I started doing more horror, hanging out with him, seeing more horror with him, and then exploring a lot of a lot of entries in the genre on my own. And that's really when I started, you know, really getting an appreciation for, you know, the masters of the form, you know, everyone from, you know, John Carpenter, the Dario Argento, Mario Bob, you know, Wes Craven, George Romero. I mean, all, you know, getting the the whole thing. But that's to summarize, I was you know, a little bit late to the genre, but I mean, it's absolutely love it to this day. Pretty similar to my own story. And one thing that I noticed is obviously you seem to have a passion for those anthology ones. And part of what makes those so special to me is that sort of dark comedy that runs through them. And I'm curious if that comedy is something that you're responding to when you sort of sit down to enjoy those. And if you like horror comedies in general. That's a good question. I I definitely, yeah, I mean, certainly like from those early days of like Tales from the Crypt, which always had a, you know, almost always had a comedic bent to it. There's some kind of, you know, there's a, there's a dark comedy, a very, you know, very dark, morbid comedy to it, you know, very kind of cynical and, and which is, which is certainly an element of humor that I appreciate. And so, so yeah, I think I, I always enjoy, I mean, I, there's certainly horror that, you know, is just completely serious and doesn't never, never kind of turns to the camera never kind of breaks the form is, is complete, completely straight. And some of that is incredible. You know, I love sure. like, you know, you know, the Dario Shento repulsion, things like that. I mean, you know, that is just like, there, there is not a single ounce of levity in those movies, right. but, but yeah, I appreciate that. I don't. I think horror comedy is really hard to do. I think Definitely. there's only been a handful that have really done it successfully. But I do, I mean, I certainly like, I I, I like horror the most when it does kind of blend genre. And I think I, I, I appreciate when at least it, it allows for some levity, some, you know, that kind of that morbid gallows humor, I think is, right. I think really is, I think is often necessary. I think even like in serious drama, those, those moments of levity are necessary. I think I know for me as an actor, I know I kind of, 
naturally gravitate towards comedy, whether I like it or not. You know, even when I get cast in something that's dramatic or serious, the the moment that I'm brought in for is, is usually a moment of kind of levity or humor. So I appreciate it. I think I don't say like a lot of like straight things that are try. I think when when a horror tries to be funny, I think it it often fails. But I think mm-hmm. when it's when it commits to the form and then kind of brings in certain elements to it, like I think. You know, I mean, I think the classic example is, you know, American Werewolf in London, you know, which is, you know, still, I mean, I, I think is considered a horror comedy, but is but is completely serious in its execution. And then it has these unexpected moments of comedy that you just don't that you still don't even know what to do with. It's which I think that that I think is the best form of it, as opposed to, you know, something that tells you right away, this is a comedy. And I think that this is exactly what you're touching on. To me, one of the most successful ways to utilize that is not necessarily to have a movie that is quote unquote funny, but to have characters in the movie who are funny and who can, who can be funny. I think that that's what American werewolf in London does so well is yes, there are funny, like when the ghost shows up. Oh yeah. With the Mickey mouse doll or you right. know, in the movie theater returns to him and says, you look terrible. I mean, that right. those moments are incredible. I mean, and I think exactly. I forget who said it, but I remember someone saying that, you know, why, when comedy and horror are blended are blended correctly, it's it's perfect because because both comedy and horror traditionally rely on the element of surprise. Exactly. And exactly. so and I think when, and I think I think American Werewolf in London is a perfect example of that because those the the, the uh, you know the scares and those startling moments are just as effective as the moments of comedy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it you is. never expect any either of them. Right. But the movie we're talking about today, Miracle Mile, does fall into one of my most effective but underutilized subgenres. Although we may get more as global superpowers continue to escalate things, you know, media oh, reflects boy. the time. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this this is part of the nuclear anxiety genre. Yes, yes. Which, you know, we were getting there. There were a handful of these in the eighties. I mean, it was, this was you know the time of Iran Contra. It definitely touched on a lot of anxiety paranoia of the time. Yeah, and this show has a history of nuclear anxiety between Threads and Dr. Strangelove, but where I find this to be a particularly interesting sliver of the genre is in its emphasis on the actual event. You know, we get a lot more post-apocalypse, and even those that do show the actual event use it more as a piece of the anxiety puzzle, whereas Miracle Mile is truly all about the awful tension of waiting for it to happen. Correct. Yeah. And it is almost if you are to connect, you know, connect into horror, the ground level elements of horror. I mean, the the nuclear attack itself is the killer, is the monster. Right. The title of Miracle Mile refers to the contained environment the movie takes place in, a piece of Wilshire Boulevard whose commercial development by A.W. Ross is pretty interesting. It was designed to cater to cars, not pedestrians. And not only does this influence the urban design of many cities going forward, for better or for worse, but it also triggers the multi-downtown layout of L.A. that helps contribute to it being such a population center and ripe target for the kind of event we see in the movie. Exactly. It also contains Museum Row, home to many fine museums, including the inciting environment for our two lovebirds in the movie, the La Brea Tar Pits. Yes. Um, I haven't been there myself, but it seems fun in an even more preoccupied with death kind of way than most museums. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you have LACMA, the famous uh, L.A. Art Museum right there, lining on on La Brea. We now have the Academy Museum, the Car Museum there. Yeah, the the whole row there is very famous. 
And the movie was directed by Steve DeJarnat, who had a hit with Tarzana, and he was hot stuff at the time. And then he kept saying no to projects, which made him even hotter. Everyone was like, oh, what does he know that we don't know? <laughs> yeah, and then had a real run there for a minute there, and then didn't really carry much into the 90s beyond that. And he talked about walking out of a marathon at the El Rey Theater and marveling at how beautiful the empty Miracle Mile looked at this time of night. And he said that influenced the germination of the concept. And then he only worked on it at night. He said it was the only time it made sense late at night listening to the Sorcerer soundtrack. And I was like, who hasn't been there? (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Yeah. The exact line he used, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this, is that while New York never sleeps, L.A. goes to bed at 10 p.m. Then is back up at 5 a.m. to read scripts. There's some truth to that. I think it depends on the weekend. I mean, I think it's a little I think the part the party culture is certainly you know as has kind of, you know, evolved over the over the years since the making of this, but I think sure. there is there is still truth to that. I mean, I think, you know, the it's still the I mean, I think there's there's always you'll always find someone out in LA. There's always a bar that's closing late, especially in Hollywood, less so in the outlying areas especially you know like monday through friday there is a certain clockwork to things you know you got kind of dictated by the studio system and that sort of thing if you're out partying with someone on a wednesday night at 2 a.m you know they're probably not due on set the next day you know (laughs) or they're in their mid-20s and have a you know maybe 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 have a problem to look into sure sure (laughs) and this of course does feed into the numerous comparisons especially contemporaneously to After Hours. Another one of my favorite movies. Really, really great. I actually just watched it right before this recording because I was oh, like, awesome. oh man, perfect double feature. Oh, um, that's like, oh, that's, I didn't even think of that. That's a, that's a brilliant double feature. Yeah. After Hours is probably one in my top five movies of all time. Really, really great. And yeah, definitely they do feel of a spirit, but also very different in a lot of really interesting ways. That yeah. Make it, that contrast that keeps it fresh the whole time you're watching. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because there were a handful of these kind of movies in the 80s that After Hours fell into of these kind, I call them kind of down the rabbit hole movies. You take kind of a mild-mannered yuppie character who's by by some incident you know, maybe it's another person or a, or a set of incidents. Their world is completely turned upside down. I think another example of that would be something wild from Jonathan Demi. You know, yeah, movies like that. But these are distinct in the, a few of these movies that where it all happens over like one day or night. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This movie did take a long time to make. Steve said he was pitching it to Warner Brothers in 78, turned wow. it in towards the end of 79. I do feel like that 70s feeling does kind of permeate the movie. It does feel like a throwback, even for when it was made, especially with the unhappy ending, I think really kind of aligns it with that elder sort of era. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And the, the the only resolution, you know, kind of positive resolution we get is is between the two, the, the two lead characters. It's, right. you know, their situation is fucked. <laughs> but we have that last moment that's some that is somewhat affirming of just like you know that there this is this is in in some way the best moment of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Warner Brothers actually wanted to make it Twilight Zone the movie, and they went back and forth until he actually bought it back to make it himself using the money he got for a writing credit on Strange Brew. Interesting. Um, and. And he accepted the movie Cherry 2000 to basically keep the lights on while he worked on this. 
I haven't seen that in years. I know it does have a bit of a cult following still. Yeah, I watched that. Pretty fun. I can't I can't say that I'm like, oh, I'm going to throw it on every weekend. But I had a good time <laughs> while I was watching it. <laughs> yeah, there's talk of, I, I think that was optioned recently for a remake. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I, wow. I did I did see somewhere about that. And that also has a distinction. It was Cherry 2000 was co-written by the director, Michael Amareda, who's gone on to do a lot of really interesting films like the 1989 Twister and Nadia, the Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Love that one. Honestly, yeah. one of my favorite Shakespeare adaptations. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's high up there for me too. But yeah, he has an interesting filmography of yeah writing Strange Brew, then directing Cherry 2000, and then and then finally being able to direct his own movie. Exactly. He made it work. He wound up working with Hemdale Film to get this made. Yes. And they got $4.4 million all in, 3.7 below the line to make it. All of his Cherry 2000 money went into it as well. And then he went a further $150,000 into debt to finish. They were literally broke by the time the credits printed, as evidenced by the uncorrected misspelling of Michael T. Williamson in the opening credits. Right. Uh, the quote he said was, I put my heart, soul, bank account, and credit rating into this. I believe it. Then it took seven weeks to shoot at night, constantly under pressure. The financiers literally said, if you fall two or three days behind schedule, you will be fired. And I'm wow. I'm not saying that's good conditions to work under, but I am saying that the stress seems to be tangible on screen. Yeah, I think it was effective. Yeah. And ultimately finding exactly who the characters were was a part of why it took basically the whole 80s to make. His original concept was an older protagonist basically following the reconciliation story that we see between Julie's grandparents. And it would be the trombonist who comes back into LA and their lives after 15 years to see his son play another band recital. This version also drank harder, which I think ties to the question of narrator reliability. We do see Harry change his story a bit. He questions if it's a dream. There's references to Chicken Little. Yes. This was something Warner Brothers was pushing for because what they wanted the ending to be would involve his waking up and looping through the events again when they mm. thought it was going to be a Twilight Zone movie. Interesting. And in fact, a big part of this movie is Steve's own dreams from growing up in the Cold War era. Convinced that the bomb dropping was a certainty, he said he had vivid visions of the light of day turning dark from B-52s and the bomb falling right on his nose. That's really interesting. I mean, because, yeah, you know, the you know, the people who are coming of age in this era in the 80s, you know, were you know being raised by parents who grew up in the Cold War era in the era where, you know, where nuclear attack was imminent was, you know, the you know, where you had the air raid drills where it was just it could be any day now. And then to doubly, you know, to set it in a precarious setting, like, you know, in a coastal city like Los Angeles, where, you know, there's still to this, I mean, every day, you know, there is that kind of vague fear of that. It is not if, but when we get another huge quake. So there is that kind of, you know, to, to, to choose this precarious setting, like Los Angeles, like in the, the, in the center of Los Angeles is, you know, kind of heightens it even more. Definitely. You feel that looming dread the entire time. Absolutely. In that way, it is very Chicken Little, like I said, but also sort of North by Northwest. It's mm. this everyman who rolls with the punches on his journey set in motion by this fluke incident, right? That he picks up the phone and that sets this entire thing, sets him on his path. 
it has a lot of Hitchcock influence, I think, in a way that really, really works. Definitely. Yeah, it has Yeah, that kind of high tension of Hitchcock, I think, you know, and or like people who like took a lot of influence from him. I feel I see a lot of Brian De Palma and and in uh, Sidney Lumet as far as that way that they both build tension in their films. Definitely. As far as casting, they were looking for the girl next door in the everyman. They didn't yep. want action heroes. They wanted the type of people for whom this meet cute leads to settling down and raising a family. Right. So they landed on Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham, who I think absolutely just knock it out of the park. 100%. I mean, that's what makes it so relatable is that they are the every person characters. They, this is, you know, that's what makes it so, you know, the tension so, so palpable is that, you know, you watch this and it's, you're not watching Bruce Willis navigate the situation. You're, you're watching just kind of an everyday person. Cause you know, the, whenever I watch like a big action movie or something like that, I, I mean, my first thought, you know, in the first five minutes is after the first action sequence, I'm, my first thought is, well, I'd be dead. <laughs> Who among us can claim otherwise? <laughs> right. And so and so to watch someone that we could kind of relate to, not someone of, of high athletic prowess, but just, you know, someone who has only his youth and tenacity, you know, in his corner, you know, some slight durability of being in his mid-20s. But it's like, oh, yeah, this I guess this could be me. Definitely. And I think that they have the right amount of sort of softness that you buy their connection, right? Oh. Neither one of them is too cool for school or anything. Definitely, yeah. From the beginning, you know, they're both incredibly likable. They're both just a little odd, a little quirky, which, you know, is definitely my beat. And so it's just like, yeah, you definitely, you want them to be together from the beginning. They said Steve was a huge sweetie and the script was so tight and well composed that the hardest part was learning to play a little trombone. Oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> yeah. I loved. Yeah, that's great. The director of photography was Theo Vandesand, who I also think does a really good job. Very organized, no one shots, or excuse me, very one shot. Not a lot of cutting around. Yeah, that's he had true. Done, he had done around two dozen movies in Europe, but this was his first American movie. And mm. one thing that I want to point out that he does a lot that I really loved is there's so much depth that they're capturing. There's a lot of foreground and background action, and that really lets them sort of take advantage of the entire set in a way that a lot of movies are not able to do. It just really looks great. It feels very active. It's he does a great job. Yeah, yeah, no, very, yeah, very much so. There's that high, high tension that he just captures. Uh, you know, from the beginning, a lot of moving shots and a lot of close-ups. You really focus. It sustains its tension by focusing on the characters and keeping your investment. And that's what keeps the attention so high. Is that you're so invested in these people? Absolutely. Uh, the movie came out and did sadly flop. It made just over a million dollars. So mm. Steve sadly went to director jail. He eventually made one more for TV movie called Future Sport, and he did some TV episodes before turning to literature. I did look into his his short stories. Mm. They seem to also be very sort of tied to this disasters and finding strength and adversity oh, kind of stuff that I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, interesting. So definitely thematic for him. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's, I mean, especially at that time, I think the rules have kind of loosened a bit, but yeah, there was at that time, you know, yeah, if you, you know, you had one fumble, it was like, it was very hard to recover from that. And it's, it's a real shame because I think critically fairly well received, but yeah, it, you know, it fortunately again, did not get butts in seats, you know, it might've hit a little too close to home. I don't know. 
that complex tone that we were talking about might be a bit of a turnoff for some people who aren't looking for that kind of thing. So right, yeah, because it and it wasn't. I think even with the inflation, I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a huge budget. I think at the time it was just under four million you know, which would be about maybe 10 or 12 now. So that's, it's still not that, it's not like a 20, $30 million film. No, and every penny is definitely on screen. Oh, 100%. Yeah. One last bit of preface. In the commentary, they discuss the motif of screens and presentation, specifically how they can impact the speed with which things can get out of hand. This also connects to glass, which frequently separates people here as panes Mm. of glass in windows or doors or phone booths, but also as screens that separate you from what's being presented. This glass motif also ties into our viewing the world around us and then more loftily viewing reality, as in separating fact from fiction or dream from consciousness, which again is something that does come up and is toyed with a little bit. Harry's glasses also are a big representation of this. Mm. And the prism that he plays with and buys from the La Brea Museum breaks down white light into the composite colors, including the white light of a nuclear blast, which ultimately is one of we see. Yes. Oh, that's that's so interesting. Yeah, the the yeah, those those details kind of throw out. It's like one of those where the you take a detail like that and it's going to get a it's going to be called back or utilized at some point later. Definitely, definitely. So let's get into the actual movie. It opens up with some sad trombone brought to us by Harry Washello. One thing that they mentioned in the commentary which I found pretty interesting is that narratively there's not really any time where this makes sense. So it's possible to take it as an answer that it is a dream, actually. But, you know, it also is thematic, right? It's it's expressionistic to have this moment of him sadly tromboning away. So I think it works for me, whether oh, yeah. you think about it making sense narratively or not. Right. It's an interesting... Yeah, it's kind of yeah, yeah, and it, and it's certainly the yeah, the sax, the tune he's playing is very mournful. It kind of it's setting up for the downbeat, pessimistic you know conclusion of the film, kind of foreshadowing that. Exactly, and his voiceover laments, "Love can spin your head around. Where do I begin?" And it cuts to Carl Sagan discussing the Big Bang, which is layered, obviously, because not only is this a foreshadowy big explosion. But in its most extreme sense, he's starting at the beginning of the story, kind of amusing, the beginning of life and the end of it all in one movie. That's, yeah, very true. This is playing on the TV at the La Brea Tar Pits, which has some natural history elements to it. So we see on more than just this video, the lengthy process of life's evolution, setting it up as a juxtaposition for the speed with which it can be wiped out. I think that that's really cool. I also really like the audio thing that they do where it becomes clear that it's playing from the display. And as it does that, it shifts from stereo to mono. Really cool moment in in the Mm. audio mix. Oh, cool. Harry and the woman that he's talking about, Julie, kind of circle around the museum. They're exchanging glances. He seems to be a goof. He's good with the kids. I love the Tangerine Dream piece of score here as they drift. You get these nice laconic credit sequence. Just really cool stuff. Yeah, those yeah, those drifting credits. I don't know who did the who designed the titles. That that in in combination with the Tangerine Dream score, which I think is in I think is incredible throughout. I think the ethereality of it that it, it is. It, I mean, the score itself is also very dreamlike, and it's just yeah. I think it's a an, it's in I their mean, damn it, name, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's yes, yeah, it's, it's terrific. The Tangerine Dream done some 
incredible scores. And yeah, this one, I think, yeah, doesn't it doesn't get enough praise. Yeah, because it's it it really makes the movie starting yeah. starting from the beginning here. Absolutely agreed. Julie in particular has some interesting moments. One, right as we see her for the first time, she actually breaks the fourth wall. She like looks right into camera in a mm. really interesting way. There's also another moment where she pauses under the mammoth and the tusks form like almost a halo above her could be read as like uh, impending death, but also the way that Harry himself sees her as this angel that he stumbled upon. Sure. And to set it in kind of a prehistoric setting, you know, that you could interpret that many ways, you know, that this being kind of a love that transcends time, much like how later the love of her grandparents is reignited at the last possible moment that it's like right. this is the love that we're really focusing on is something that goes beyond time, goes beyond life itself. Absolutely. And our final credit, written and directed by Steve DeJarnat, appears, and it cuts to the tar pits and an elephant frozen in death. An ominous and fatalistic image, no doubt. You also get a great crane shot out of it. Who says no to that? No, absolutely. And Harry laments his own being stuck, ruining the fact that he let the perfect woman get away without saying anything. But there she appears and says hello, so he gets a second chance at it. Yeah. I love this date montage that they go on. We get to see some of their personalities on display in a fun way. It's very see, don't tell. She laments the trapped lobsters in the tank of the restaurant. He asks how much it would be to free them all and send them back to Maine. And the guy says $1,200. So instead they buy four of them and drop them off the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, it's a unique moment between them. You're obviously, you feel connection to, you know, both of them. Her compassion, how he responds to that. It's it's terrific. Absolutely. They also ride a merry-go-round and connect over jazz, which she goes to watch him play in a Save the Pan Pacific benefit, which is another funny layered joke. Obviously, it's intended to be Save the Pan Pacific Auditorium, which had fallen into disrepair after closing in 1972 before burning down in 1989. But it can also just be like, hey, we're about to get nuked to save us, especially in conjunction with the bomber jacket that she's wearing. Exactly. They take the trolley to drop off her grandpappy Ivan at the Park La Brea apartments. There was a really funny joke in the commentary about Reagan being good casting for this role, but he was, quote, arguably busy making all this possible. <laughs> I love that. Oh, imagine. Yeah. If he took. <laughs> yeah. If, if they. Yeah. Imagine if they. If yeah, if they included, if they if they brought him on, you know, had him step down to you know from the disaster he was creating, right? <laughs> to go back on screen. Yep. This apartment complex, though, is where Julie lives as well, but separately with her grandmother Lucy. They haven't spoken in fifteen years over some stupid argument they don't even remember, and they still love each other, but are too prideful to come together, almost like some kind of cold war. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> You can also see the 5900 building, a.k.a. the Mutual Life building, as they refer to it here, looming over them, which will come back. It's a great one-shot, too, as we follow them across the sort of quad that exists in the middle of this apartment complex. Just, I mean, yeah, I can't say it enough. The movie just looks great at all times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the opening shots looking over the city. It's so funny because it is, it is like he's writing a love letter to Los Angeles <laughs> before he blows it up. That's exactly right. Get you a director who can do both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they part with a smooch because she has to go to work at Johnny's Coffee, but he makes plans to pick her up around midnight so they can go dancing, and in the meantime, he's headed back to the hotel for a nap. 
And interestingly, this production actually built a lot of the iconic imagery for Johnny's, like the blue color, the orange upholstered chairs, the light boxes, the spinning burgers, and the spinning clock. And one really funny part was he points out that they could only afford to build one side of the clock. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And something that I love that on top of sort of showcasing man's inhumanity to man, with plenty of shots of the unhoused in the area, they've also been doing these little moments of, like, impending doom. Obviously, it's a huge plot moment, but when he starts to smoke on the balcony and he tosses the still-smoldering cigarette on the ground, fine. Ordinary movie stops there, says, great, we see him improving out of love. But the best horror movie ever made goes, now let's see this cigarette get grabbed by a bird and brought back to its nest, famously made of kindling. And of course, it goes up in flames. Very easy to sort of project yourself and the destruction of the planet onto this sort of bird in the, in the nest of flames here. Right, yeah. That we're all kind of building our lives on, a, you know, a, a nest of kindling that could go up in flames at any moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's some, yeah, very pungent symbolism there. Definitely. And the fire actually knocks the power out. And I love, this is maybe my favorite moment in the movie because... Talking about how it's dreamlike and everything, this is the moment that really feels like transitioning to a dream. Obviously, he's going to bed, but the smoke, when you see the fire smoke, like, peeling out, looks like this thick fog out the window. The Tangerine Dream score is going crazy. The full moon is staring down. It really feels transportive. Yeah, and that is kind of signals the tonal shift. You know, before we get the actual inciting incident, this is really that kind of catalytic tonal shift, you know, kind of much like After Hours, the moment in that where there's that tonal shift of him being in the taxi cab and it kind of cartoonishly, you know, maneuvering <laughs> through traffic and then his single $20 bill floats out the window. That kind of moment where it's like, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. Absolutely. And with the power out, though, his alarm doesn't go off in time, and Julie waits there alone for an hour before returning home, and the alarm finally goes off when the power is restored. And the movie basically goes into real time here, not really leaving Harry's side. We observe what he observes. I really like this as a way to, again, build that tension, right? We're not cutting around. Every cut is an opportunity to break that tension and to stumble as you peel away from it but because we're stuck with harry we just see him sweating the whole damn time yep the motif of clarity is uh, is reinforced as well as we take time to focus on his eyes the act of putting glasses on and he casually starts to get dressed he thinks he's got plenty of time he stops to change the channel off the footage of jet planes and the star-spangled banner He's flipping through station ids and static when suddenly the weather station graphic gives him the correct time 3.45 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Big fuck up by by our man Harry here. Although not nothing he could do, I suppose, except not smoke. Correct. And that's why we still, <laughs> you know, we're still on his side. But it's like, yeah, but we, I mean, we've all been there. You have, you have some moment that, you know, maybe is out of our control, but still, you know, makes us look bad in, you know, someone we're maybe trying to build a relationship with. Yeah. One other thing that I want to mention is he's flipping through these channels. One of the other things that's playing that he flips past is Bird of Paradise, which is a movie that features a love story set against an erupting volcano. So very similar there to the movie that we're actually watching. Harry makes a break for it now that he knows the time. He pulls into the diner and suddenly a bunch of rats fall on the hood when he bumps a tree. Very fucking gross. Never considered tree rats being a possibility. Oh, yeah, that's a big, that's a big thing. Yeah, with palm trees in L.A. that, is, you know, because 
another interesting thing because you know the the palm tree is very much on the poster it's very much a it is a motif symbol in this film and palm trees are very much associated with la but they don't grow here naturally they were all shipped from you know florida and elsewhere wow yeah they do not grow here naturally and so because of that yeah they're basically growing out of this you know you know in the middle of the city you know yeah they're gonna be a bed to rats absolutely here they just stay in the subway tracks which is helpful exactly yeah <laughs> oh, yeah that's good <laughs> if you give them another home they'll go there whether it's a you know rundown apartment or a or or a palm tree that's right a group of regulars shuffles into Johnny's while Harry finds Julie no longer there. He leaves her an apologetic voicemail at the payphone. There's also a little L.A. history happening as well. One of the characters tells another that Johnny's used to be Romeo's Times Square. Yep. I don't know how long it's been shut down. It's still there. You can still walk by it. It was used as a, you know, for many years, you know, it was mainly only used as a movie location, as a picture right. diner for a lot of spots. And then right. I know back in 2016, it was temporarily reopened as a po- as a promotional pop-up for the Bernie Sanders campaign and, re- mm. and renamed Bernie's. Wow, that rocks. Yeah. It was very cool. So yeah, it was kind of a hub for the for the Sanders campaign, and I think it was operational for a time during his campaign. Very cool. Yeah. Harry grabs a paper to kill time with. One of the headlines is "Arms Talks Continue." Which is, yeah, ominous. Yes. But suddenly the phone is ringing, and here is where things take a turn. They sure do. Harry answers, thinking it could potentially be Julie trying to ring him back. But instead, it's a North Dakotan man who misdialed while looking for his dad, claiming that a nuke is going to touch down in just under an hour. Harry is understandably getting a little nervous about this, especially when the man appears to be cut down by gunfire and a new voice tells him to forget what he heard. I mean, how do you even respond to that? <laughs> boy, oh boy, what an inciting incident. It really is. And they discuss the difficulty of performing this scene, since he's really on his own here, and this was the other side is filled in later, obviously. And it's just this one shot crawling in. No cutting around to let him start over. He really had to just nail that. There are a few moments in this. There's another one with Kurt Fuller later on where it's moments of this that feel very theatrical. That have these big monologues that someone has to perform in a one, one shot take that just really is, is impressive throughout. Yeah. There's a hilarious billboard in the background that just says, oh, no. I missed that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it has a koala scared and covering its eyes, but in the dark, it looked like a rat <laughs> as well. So very funny billboard. Love that. He clocks the time on the spiraling clock. 4.06. Great way to, you know, set the timer, right? Now we're on board with it. Yeah. He walks into the glass door, which is very funny, but also seems to sort of shock him back to reality. He grossly bleeds onto his eggs, which is so so bright and vivid. It's very disturbing. Yeah, there is a very a distinct use of of color, often from like unexpected you know sources. But yeah, yeah. And he scares the waitress, grabbing her wrist while asking for the full pot of coffee. I I had to laugh when he just dumps the milk in there instead of even just like pouring himself cups. <laughs> yeah, but he's going through it, trying to wrap his head around the call and its veracity and finally decides that it was true, and warns the rest of the patrons who are largely unimpressed. There are a lot of good actors in this town with insomnia and nothing better to do, one of them says. Very true. Very, very Yeah, <laughs> very accurate, very accurate statement. Denise Crosby is there. She's named Landa, and she's a big shot. Very funny introduction to her earlier in the scene. 
when she starts speed reading the spark notes of the famously dense gravity's rainbow, which also does refer to the trajectory of a missile. So another layered joke. Wow. Nothing like a timely Pinchon reference. <laughs> That's right. We're all making them every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who, who is it? Love it. She used to date someone who worked at the Rand Corporation, infamously government-associated think tank, and when she calls to check out the story, she starts to get freaked out as well, which freaks everyone else out, especially Frank, the owner of the joint. And he holds Harry at gunpoint to confirm he's not joking, then says, I'm not taking any chances, and starts to go for his truck. This is Robert O'Kee from RoboCop. He rocks. Yep. It's so good. He's so good in this movie and in RoboCop, and he's just great. Yeah, he's terrific. Great little ensemble cast. You've got uh, Earl Bowen from Terminator, Olan Jones from Edward Scissorhands. Uh, She popped up in a few Tim Burton movies. She's terrific. Yeah, it's interesting. We have this little ensemble cast that's established that we then quickly abandon, but we have this great extended scene with them. Yeah. I also think it's very funny that Harry's quitting cigarettes only lasted a few hours as he smokes nervously there. (laughs) I think that's that's rela- that's definitely relatable, you know, that we're doing so great until everything goes wrong and then we're back at it, you know. Yeah. Anyone grappling with addiction can relate to that. For sure. One of the other patrons who is a, a marginalized person of axes of gender expression, race, and presumed sex work says, if I said this, nobody would believe me, but they're quickly shushed which I found to be kind of an interesting line of thought, this white and masculine privilege of being taken seriously, especially in tandem with the question of metatextual narrative reliability, right? The fact that he could be dreaming, and and the fact that that is raised up as a possibility so many times for, uh, I think the, the character's name is Danny. Yeah, I think yeah, Danny or or maybe Roger, I thought. Maybe, uh, maybe, yeah. You yeah, might yeah, which is interesting because that, the character is, is named in the movie, but then credited merely as transvestite. Right. It does call this up just to kind of be like, hey, they're right. (laughs) They probably wouldn't be taken seriously. Yeah, there is a kind of a, a, you know, transparency there of of acknowledging, you know, this kind of marginalized character, but then also just marginalizing them, but not by not even giving them a name in the credits. Right. Absolutely. He does recall the specifics of what the other man said. It was scorched in his brain by fear. He just goes lizard mode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just recounts it verbatim. And it's an interesting moment because there's, you know, in my experience, you know, writing scripts and that sort of thing, a trap to avoid often is any time in which a character is recounting a moment that we've already seen. That's usually kind of a trap. It's kind of this, uh, you know, kind of, repeat exposition of you know but we don't need the information find a way to just you know but it speaks to the the tension he creates that doesn't feel repetitive when he's recounting the information we understand how much it's affected him the fact that he can repeat it verbatim and it's so it's it's a that's a really interesting kind of use of the storytelling tool is that it does serve the purpose of of illustrating how affected he is by that experience. Yeah, it's a really cool subversion, for sure. Exactly. Several of them plan out their paths from the city since they have this head start. Frank and the waitress are going to take cans of food into the mountains while Landa and some of the others are trying to get to the airport as quick as possible and get in the air. Landa says there's a safe place in the Antarctic with no rainfall but plenty of fresh water from the snow. There's one touch that I love here where one of the guys just pukes in fear. (laughs) 
I just think that's such a good touch when they all step outside. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, Earl Bowen from Terminator. Yeah, he's great. Roger, refused to believe it, just chills at the countertop. Doesn't leave the diner. Harry gets the exact address for Julie, but his car is stolen in the chaos of them all leaving, ironically by someone who Frank refused to grab his mother, although he asked in Spanish, so that was something that was mentioned in the commentary for me. Yeah. Harry hops into the truck with the rest of them. I do like that Landa tasks two random people with coming up with a list of great minds they want to join them, and it does wind up being very 60s radicals versus ordinary people. Yes. Yeah, there's another the another kind of younger guy there. I forget. The younger street sweeper, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the guy who's yeah, kind of talking with the older gentleman and then he's yeah, rattling off people like Bobby Seal and Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte, yeah. Yes. Frank tells him, "Sure, we'll get Julie, but this is revealed to be a fib to expedite things." He says, "I love her too, but it's doggy dog. Every minute counts, and I don't stop for nothing." Yeah. So Harry grabs his gun and demands to be let off. And Frank says, if you want to jump, just do it when I go for the off-ramp, which is exactly what Harry does. Yeah, he sure does. Yeah. Wild moment. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that for him to just be like, you're right. Here I go. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, that is exactly. He's not stopping. He's got to. If he's making the move, he's got to do it. Right. Do it. Yeah. No one's stopping. Yeah. 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 Fred doesn't stop driving and Harry's determined to get to Julie. And he passes out from the impact, and there's this really great moment where you think he's going to get hit by a car, very scary, and then it turns out to be two motorcycles that zoom past either side of him. Yeah. Oh my god. They also told this funny story in the commentary about how they were adding the lights to the side of the freeway that you see there, and that they couldn't get some to work because they were so cheap, and decided, fuck it, it's less realistic for the city of LA to actually keep them all working anyway. Interesting. His glasses are also smashed from the fall, and he wanders to the side of the road and thinks it must be a dream. Pinching is for squares. Let me fire this gun in the air to check. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's a very funny moment. Yeah. In the original script, he actually shot his own hand, which is, I guess, going the other direction and saying pinching is for squares. Let me go for a a full bullet wound here. Oh, boy. Well, Uh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been maybe even too much, too much, yeah. Of a, yeah. too much of an adding maybe one too many obstacles, you yeah. know, already. You know, he's got I mean, yeah, <laughs> he, he's got plenty. To, he's got plenty already <laughs> and plenty more to come. That's right. He stops the next vehicle at gunpoint and now he has a driver, which is a very scared man named Wilson selling stolen stereos from the trunk. And while running back to Julie's, Harry alludes to the impending attack enough to freak out Wilson. They're low on gas, though, so they pull into the cabbie gas station, where Harry makes a call to Ivan, Julie's dad, asking him to wake up Julie and wait outside. The owner of this gas station, who's played by Eddie Bunker, famous author about jail, also holds Wilson at gunpoint, thinking he's trying to steal some gas. Yes. Would later show up as, he was uh, friends with Quentin Tarantino and was later cast as Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Right. Yeah, he was a writer, wrote wrote a lot from prison, I think. Yeah, he wrote the novel a- Animal Factory that was uh, later, you know, from based on his experience in prison that was later turned into a film. Right. And and he, I think he, he met Danny Trejo in prison and was kind of instrumental in getting him into the, into the business. Oh, wow. I didn't know that part. That's really cool. Yeah, no, he's had a really, really interesting career. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's terrific. Harry smooths this all over with Cash. I don't pump gas, though, he says, so Harry makes Wilson do it. Status and race very much still a factor here, we see. Yes. 
Passing cops spot the gun and skid to a halt, and scared of the time that he'll do for the assorted crimes he's committed, Wilson sprays them with gas, and the cop fires her gun, lighting herself and her partner on fire, which then explodes the whole dang station. Quite a scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's also a recurring motif of sort of acting hastily. The police definitely do that. This is also directly, we're blinded and going to shoot off missiles that blow ourselves up. Uh, You know, it's, it's, again, pretty easy to transpose that onto a little bit more of a, a symbol here. Definitely. Harry and Wilson take the cop car, and he's shocked they still don't know about the attack when he calls into dispatch. And the imagery of pushing red buttons in relation to nukes is strong and employed here. It's also the first time that we see Harry changing his story. Mm. Based on the call, Wilson surmises it's a nuclear meltdown, and Harry does just go with it. But as they get to the apartments for Julie, Wilson wants to go get his sister, so he bails in the cop car. Basically has his own version of this movie, as did the busboy. <laughs> yeah. Harry runs up a whole heap of stairs, he breaks into the apartment, convinces Lucy Peters of the bomb, and originally they did film it as though he got the key from Ivan and just walked in and found her watching Birds of Paradise, that movie I mentioned before, but they said, too passive, let's amp it up, I think it does work, I like that she does believe him quickly though, right? She holds him at gunpoint, she says, what's the deal, but then she does accept that this is happening, which I think is good to not create that sort of false tension that would sort of fly in the face of the real tension that we're feeling from the overall scenario. Yeah, uh, definitely. He goes to wake Julie up as well, but pauses feeling like Prince, someone, he says, which does, of course, gesture to his state of transition and learning who he is. But she's fully passed out from the Valium she took after being stood up, so they just dump her in a grocery cart, which is funny. (laughs) Use what you got, you know, use what's around you. I mean, you know, you don't have time. Definitely. It also does tie into some darker undercurrents of Harry's behavior, which the director did gesture to as well. He said that there is a way to read it where he's using her to fulfill his dreams. He's objectifying her by putting her on this pedestal and almost infantilizing her by keeping her in the dark in an effort to protect her, as we'll see when she does wake up. But I think that that is sort of a pretty ungenerous reading of the behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Lucy and Ivan Peters spot each other in the lobby, though, and with their lives on the line, the fight is forgotten. Big hug. Yeah. Julie wakes up on the run over, but is still pretty groggy from the Valium, and Harry doesn't want to tell her, so he again just goes with her own suggested idea of champagne breakfast in a hot air balloon. But on the way there, they spot her grandparents in the car, who say they're not coming with them, that they have a lot of catching up to do and want to savor their time together if it's real. Right. Her first realization that this isn't an idle, fun morning. Right. And Julie is stoked they're back together at first, but she is thrown, right? What happened while she was asleep? They swore they'd never talk to each other until the day they died. (laughs) That she scoffs on the way up to the heliport. It does create this interesting contrast between her extreme joy at their reunion and his very palpable dread at the cause. Yes. This story that she tells about going to the same museum twice was actually pulled from Steve's real life in Denver, uh, although it was Elitch's, an amusement park, not a museum, which, I mean, I'll I'll go to an amusement park twice in a weekend. Sure. (laughs) They do find Landa's very bitter assistant, Gerstadt, up there, and a gassed-up helicopter. There's also some ancillary characters that demonstrate the news has spread. One of them is Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens and Near Dark. The assistant is Kurt Fuller of Running Man, Wayne's World, and Psych. I would one of my favorite performances of his is yeah yeah No Holds Barred as the 
the villain in No Holds Barred. He's incredible. Yeah. He's great. And and as we've just been sort of like alluding to this entire time, just a lot of really great actors in sort of the nooks and crannies of this thing. Everywhere you look, so, there's a really impressive actor. Yes. I think yeah, I love I love movies like this. Yeah, there isn't yeah, there isn't a weak performer and most and yeah, and most of them have fittingly and deservedly carved out careers for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that was yeah, Jeanette Goldstein who's terrific in both yeah, yeah, Aliens and Near Dark. Every possible moment. Uh, yeah, I know it's even one of the band members in the beginning is that he's playing with is actor turned director Peter Berg. That's right. He crows about getting him his SAG card in the commentary. Yes. I thought, yeah, yeah I, saw, I think I saw a trivia bit about that. Yeah, that, that's what got him his SAG card. Hey, not, not, a, not a bad start. No, definitely not. Yeah. Julie is getting more and more confused, especially when it becomes clear that there's no balloon. And now Harry is going to try and get off to find a pilot, leaving her there with an I love you, even as she tries to push back. And the truth finally dawns on her as the rest of the group talks. Really amazing shot as she calls out from the roof and it angles up from Harry down at the bottom. Just really demonstrative of the gulf between them and, and the tension that he's feeling as it, as it has this huge pan up. Just great stuff. Yeah. Harry's randomly asking around for pilots. He follows people to this, like, kind of surreal gym. <laughs> where he does finally stumble across Brian Thompson, who seems to have flown in Nam, and he's convinced with another lie, this time about toxic cyanide smoke getting blown this way and sent to the helipad with his boyfriend, but Harry hears Julie asking for pilots too and realizes that she came back down. All right, so he needs to go get her. Exactly. A cop car comes careening past Julie and smashes into the department store. You know, we talked about the budget, some really intense stunts in this movie for the price. Yeah, every penny of this movie is on screen for sure. Yeah, the location set looks so good here when he, when he's in this uh, department store. Just great. Yeah, totally. When she goes to check on the presumed officer, she actually finds Wilson and his sister seriously injured from being shot for the stolen car and the crash. He tries to carry her up the escalator, but it's moving under his feet. He doesn't really understand what's happening, and he repeats several of Harry's lies. Really impactful death scene, but one of the really crucial moments is that he says it's been over an hour already. Mm, that little timestamp. Right. And Harry and Julie have to sort of reckon with it, and she does question his lies while the cops warn them that they're surrounded. I really love that they're in the clock section of this department store, really reinforcing the countdown of time running out. Funny aside, in the commentary where he just goes, we had to get a lot of discount clocks. <laughs> Funny. She steps out to talk with the cops, but they seem to have vanished, and there's this great eerie score. In the commentary, they describe the tableau she comes across as the stairway to heaven, with the corpses there across the escalator from a mannequin wedding. Just really a gut punch of, of set design here. Really awesome. Yeah, Absolutely. I also love when Harry comes out and it's locked on him for so long. It really builds the anticipation and expectation of what you might see. So when it's revealed that they're all on the move, that fear kicks back in. They took the fact that they were still here to mean it had been called off. But if that's the case, why the rush all of a sudden? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They stop back at the diner and the clock says 5.05, which means it hasn't been an hour yet. And neither of them clock that, though. Pun a little intended. <laughs> uh. 
He does call the intended phone number, though, and confirms that the guy at the other end has a son named Chip at a missile silo in Nebraska. We do at least get this feeling of like, well, he didn't make it up, right? It does sort of confirm what's happening in a way that then makes your stomach drop out because you go, oh, great, we got confirmation that they're about to get hit by a nuclear strike. <laughs> yeah. The chaos is building. A bunch of cars crash outside. They start to haul ass back to the heliport amid looting and fights, and there's sex happening and crashes, and Harry spots the pilot, and he has to chase him down again while sending Julie back up, thinking that this guy bailed on them with the cash. And the sun has started to peek out, and Harry catches him, only to find it's another impossibly square-jawed blonde man. <laughs> L.A., am I right? Yeah. <laughs> he stops at an electronics store display of TVs, and he can't help himself from wanting to know if he was right or not, because he hasn't clocked that. It also shatters the pane of glass between him and TV, the metaphorical one, as his news has made it to the anchor being shoved on screen with a fresh script. Yeah, continuing that metaphor of the barriers of glass that are shattered. Exactly. This was originally Walter Cronkite in the script, breaking down and going, ah, fuck it, which I would have liked, but I also get why he didn't. <laughs> would have been great, yeah. <laughs> They throw to their man on the street, and he's promptly shot along with the camera operator, which is really upsetting, and even more so at the time when there were a lot less atrocities shown on the nightly news. Yeah. The escalation continues, people are shooting each other, cars are exploding in the shadow of the Mutual Benefit Life Building, which is very ironic. The huge shot is wild. You see this bumper-to-bumper traffic, there's plumes of flames, people are going wild. There's a great matte painting in the background as well, which I can appreciate. Yeah, just a really awesome scene. Yeah. Harry crawls into the sewer. He's chased by a guy with a gun whose car he jumped onto. And the first exit is blocked by a corpse, which is actually our director's little cameo, which I oh, thought was yeah, fun. Oh, yeah, So Harry hits the next one, which leads right into the building where he's reunited with Julie. And in the elevator, they mourn society. It's hell out there, isn't it? And he tells her to blot it out, and she says if he wasn't here, it would be hell in here too. Which I think is a nice little romantic moment, right? It re-anchors mm -hmm. us with the relationship. Yeah. People are going to help each other, won't they, she asks. Survivors, I mean. And I love this line where Harry says, I think it's the insect's turn. Yeah. See if they can do it better. Right. Yeah. The power cuts. They're bathed in red light there in the elevator. We won't feel a thing, Harry says. And we'll be together, won't we? She responds. Even if our atoms are, I mean, our spirits will be together. And this camera slowly presses in, the score pulses, mm. they smooch their farewells. But auxiliary power does bring them to the top, where they find the assistant has fried his brain. He seems to be having sex with the corpse. He definitely took a pharmacy's worth of drugs. He's slugging back some fancy wine that he laments tastes like shit. Oh, um, God. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah. Kurt Fuller does, in, in a number of his performances at that time, just go completely balls to the wall, and this is no exception. Yeah, really demonstrates his theater background in terms of being able to hold that attention while doing this long monologue in one shot. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Terrific performance. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. Such, an, such an underrated character actor. For sure. Yeah. Suddenly, he spots the first missile, though. And wait, what's this? A helicopter here to pick them up. It's the pilot who, he made it back. He is very much bleeding, though. So, I, you know, you wonder, like, oh, did they try to stop him from going back? Is this something that he had to take by force? 
yeah, his boyfriend is no longer with him, which is never explained. Right. Uh, yeah, you wonder what happens. That's certain details that are never explained, but certainly stand out. Yeah, they definitely add to it. He says we'll make it, but several more missiles cruise over the Hollywood sign and explode, melting the eyes of Kurt Fuller, who stares at them. Really nasty. Yeah. This blows out the controls of the chopper as well, and they slowly float down since there's nowhere to go. Really great shot of the Tar Pits elephant statue and a big plume of flames as we look up at them. And then an even better one as they hit the water and start to submerge very much like these elephants. Yeah. There's nothing up there, he warns her, as she starts to panic and tries to get out. But she's comforted by the idea that they might be found someday. After all, they met in the museum. Yeah. They also bring this idea of maybe the explosive pressure metamorphosizing them into diamonds, which I, I think is a nice idea. Yeah, really, re really beautiful final moment there. Definitely. Almost kind of, yeah, this surreal kind of poetic moment that you don't expect. Yeah. This idea of being reborn or kind of ascending the, you know, this inescapable tragedy, being reborn or evolved from this inescapable nightmare. Yeah, definitely. The water rises up, then there's a direct hit and explosion with white light, and then we fade to black where the credits roll. The very last sound at sort of after the credits is an air raid siren as the score transitions, which is very unsettling. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Not letting us off the hook even at the in the final second. That's right. Yeah. There is a deleted ending where they do show two diamonds twinkling on screen right before the final fade. I don't mind it, to be honest. Like we said, it is a very nice, nice romantic thing. Yeah. You know, as long as they he gets, I mean, he got the ending he wanted. I know one of the reasons it's making was delayed so long is that he really stuck to this. He wanted the unhappy ending. Studios really wanted to push to have them escape, have them survive. And he really stuck to his guns on this one. Yeah, John Daly, who was the head of the studio that wound up giving them the money, he talked about how part of the reason that he appreciated John Daly so much was because he not only supported giving it a downbeat ending, but in fact was part of the reason why Steve decided to cut this out, saying, it's too upbeat, let's rip their hearts out. <laughs> right. That's great, right, yeah, not having anything positive just like really yeah i mean that's a very i mean i was tearing up at the end of it i mean it's so tragically poignant them really making this very deep connection in the last moments of their lives and you know the, this and it, i mean it, it does i mean it really does they do really earn the ending i mean the whole thrust of the plot is for them to be together and you know overcoming this obstacle to be together and that is ultimately what happens it does give us that, so it 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 it, it you know it does leave the, leave us with them together, so it kind of earns the right to then you know as yeah rip our rip our hearts out, yeah. have such a grim ending because we do have them together. It does fulfill its promise in that regard. Absolutely, and I think that that's a great segue into summarizing Galen why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made, and I'm gonna let you start. Yeah, I think, granted that this is, we're being very loose in the terms of horror, I think this definitely delivers on horror story for anyone in the modern era. It's anyone in who lives in L.A., as I have for many years, anyone who knows the, you know, the precariousness of our situation. You know, I think I watched this in Timely in the, 
during the pandemic where, where, you know, our perspective was very much affected, didn't really didn't really trust one day to the next. And and so I, I think this this is a film that really commits to its themes, commits to the tension. I mean, it, this film does not let up. There is not an idle moment every I mean, even in the the moments where we're setting up, it really does take its time in the, that first 20 minutes and getting to invest in the characters, which I think any good horror movie really does get us to invest you know, in the characters we're following and we're rooting to survive and absolutely does that. And then from that minute that, you know, that tonal shift, I mean, it does not let up for a millisecond and it sustains that tension like all good horror movies does. And it's then giving us a bevy of memorable characters and performances like any horror movie that gets, that introduces minor characters who might who might get killed off or that sort of thing. It, all those characters add to the story, add to this kind of the bubble that we're stuck in, you know, and then up until that last, you know, the last final moment that gives us this downbeat ending, but really earns it at the end and really commits to the horror. It doesn't let us, never lets us off the hook, which I think any good horror movie does. So I think that's, though, an un, you know, an unconventional, unexpected entry in horror. I think this really stands top. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because one of the things that I found really interesting about The Happening is that it deals with the virality of fear and the chaos that it can sow. And I think that this movie presages that in a really fascinating way in terms of letting that just underscore the entire movie. Every, every moment where he's worried about possibly being incorrect is exacerbated by the fact that people are terrified at every instance around him and spreading the word. And if he is wrong, what is he possibly setting in motion here? I talked about how there is sort of a negative way to look at this, but I, I also think that there is a really romantic way to look at this, which is that not only does Harry finally become unstuck, but he is literally pursuing love with his dying breath. He could have left Julie to sleep, and just gone onto that helicopter in the first instance with Landa and the gang and not worried about it in the slightest. But he chose love and he, he tries to save Julie. And although they both wind up dying, it, it winds up being a little bit okay because, as you said, they did die together at least. Right. They are together in the end. Their, their love is preserved eternally it is the the connection between them that we're we're re we're invested in you know from the act of god that separates them you know yeah. when he misses the date and you know up until the you know the act of god that takes them out they are still together absolutely and also nukes are fucking scary man oh god <laughs> they, yeah they get scarier every day as people become more and more unglued i i have no issue sliding into nuclear anxiety mode when it comes to these kind of movies. I think it is really the, this and body horror are like the two that really still get me because they are distortions of real life and distortions of what we expect to happen in a way that is just upsetting to your core. And I think that, that this manages to do that so well through the tonal shift, through the incredible performances, through the look of it. I think that at every moment, they are committed to their best possible instincts. And and Steve, you did it, man. It took forever to get made, but you made the best horror movie ever made. 
So congratulations to Steve DeJarnett. Really incredible movie, man. Yeah. It's just really incredible. Also, I think we're noting we talk about so many details that that he really you know enriches this film with all the metaphors, everything else, and then you know he has a also you know manages to squeeze in a number of little Easter eggs, like such as like calling the the trucker character in the bar in the diner rather Harlan, which is after Harlan Ellison the sci-fi writer who wrote a lot right. of kind of kind of that that nuclear scare wrote the post-apocalyptic novel boy and his dog that was made into a movie i have no mouth and i must scream of course deals with nuclear apocalypse exactly yes and then also even something that just you know occurred to me as we were talking you know the fact that he is in a a glenn miller cover band and glenn miller famously with his military band went down in a plane during World War II. Oh, yeah. That is an interesting connection. Yeah. So even that is kind of setting up, you know, a little ironic, a little bit of dark humor there in that the musician that he's tributing, you know, the trombonist he's tributing famously went down in a plane during a world war, during global crisis. Couldn't have said it better myself, Galen. This is the best horror movie ever made. Thank you so much for bringing it to my attention. I had not heard of it prior to this. Awesome. So, oh, yeah. that's that's rad. Yeah, yeah. Number. Yeah, it was one I would been been familiar with. You know, in passing over the years. You know, and then you know only only sat down and watched recently in the last few years and just you know, completely fell in love with it. So that's great. It's that's awesome to be able to uh, yeah and you know bring it to other people's attention. I hope it, you know this episode does the same to the listeners. I also hope that, and I also hope that it convinces the listeners to check out your work, which they can find. Oh yes, uh, you can. Well, yeah, you can look me. You can find. Yeah, I, I post on. I I post updates on my work probably most most regularly on on Instagram. You can find me at Galen Howard, all in word on Instagram. And yeah, ch- yeah, ch- yeah. I post you know post updates you know regularly. You know, you can research more of my work on imdb and uh, and the and the wonders of google and yeah 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 check it out absolutely check it out as far as my plugs people can check out the back catalog this is the first episode of the year so four glorious years of best little horror house in philly to check out in the in the back hopefully you check that out lots of great episodes from comedians like hayes davenport comics artists like branson reese and you know just all kinds of really uh, incredible guests and now i'm i'm thrilled that galen is uh, numbered among them I'm honored to be among that esteemed group as well. Next episode coming up will be writer and podcaster Merritt Kay talking about The Exorcist 3. So that'll be a really fun episode that I am very much looking forward to. Check me out on Instagram as well, Little Horror PHL. That's pretty much it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.